0: Legal Face Off on WGNRadio.com is brought to you by McCorkle Litigation Services, leaders in court reporting and legal technology. Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man Montel Jordan, and
1: this is how we do it. And right now, you're listening to Legal Face Off on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the high energy legal podcast with lawyers, Rich Lenkoff and Tina Martini. And they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues, sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening, because this is how we do it.
2: Welcome into the Legal Face Off here on WGN. Our first guest joining us today, Emeritus Scholar at the American Institute, Dr. Ornstein. Thank you so much for joining us today, Doctor. We really appreciate it.
3: My pleasure.
4: Doctor, so we're talking today a little bit about the recent controversies involving Supreme Court justices uh, accepting revelations about their accepting lavish gifts, trips, uh, other apparent improprieties, uh, and them continuing to sit on cases. The most prominent one recently as a result of Judiciary Committee Chairperson Dick Durbin writing a letter, and in that letter, we he called for Alito to recuse himself from this case involving David Rivkin, who's a prominent Wall Street Journal opinionist and lawyer, uh, because of this interview that Alito gave. Alito has responded that basically, it sounds like these rules don't apply to him. Sort through that for us and for our listeners um, and, and viewers, Dr. Ornstein, because it seems like the Supreme Court of all places, of all courts, should be the most keen on rules and the most strict on accepting. But this is the one court in the world that seems to be beyond, or at least in the Western world, that seems to be beyond basic rules of recusal and um, you know fairness. So explain that to us if you can.
3: Sure. And, you know, you're absolutely right. First of all, The Supreme Court's power rests more in its public standing than anything else. Every other federal judge has to uh, basically abide by a code of ethics. The Supreme Court has been exempted, and Chief Justice Roberts has said it's because you can trust our justices. Well, what Alito and Clarence Thomas have proven is we can't trust the justices. And Alito went so far in a very friendly interview with David Rifkin. Who now has this case before the court, as to say that Congress has no power over the court in terms of its ethics or anything involving its behavior, which is an astonishing statement from somebody who clearly has not read the Constitution or decides it doesn't apply to him. Congress regulates the behavior, the jurisdiction of the court, it's right there in the Constitution. Sam Alito doesn't care. And at this point, at least, he and other justices are doing an in-your-face, we'll-do-what-we-want tough.
4: And it seems like, Dr. Ornstein, all that is well stated. It seems like these justices are saying things that no regular judge would say, that there's no conflict of it's. It's really a bizarre concept. There's no conflict of interest, or there is a conflict of interest, but I could put that aside, and I should be trusted to put that aside. The whole point of conflict of interest rules and regulations is that you don't allow the judge to get to that point where they could decide unilaterally whether to put that conflict aside or not. The rules are designed to not even get to that dilemma, right?
3: Yeah, exactly so. And, you know, one of the astonishing elements here, and isn't just about the court, what Sam Alito and Clarence Thomas have done is to violate laws involving disclosure of uh, amenities given to them. The law makes it very clear that Private travel, jet travel, even from a close friend, it has to be disclosed and shouldn't be allowed. They have taken uh, private trips with billionaires, including some they barely know who have cases before the court and have not disclosed them. So it should be up to Congress to say this is outrageous and too bad. Republicans in Congress protect Clarence Thomas and Sam Alito because they like their rulings. So all of our ethical standards, frankly, have been blown out of the water by the tribal politics that we have right now. And these justices believe that they can give a middle finger to fundamental values and get away with it. And so far, they have.
4: They have. And it doesn't seem on the immediate horizon like there is the political will to make the changes that, again, any basic sort of 1L would understand need to be input that or need to be put in place so that the judges in the highest court of land adhere to some basic rules of fairness and uh, conflict of interest avoidance. Do you think Congress at some point will gather the momentum to do that? We know that you need Republicans to do that. doesn't seem to your point like there's any will to get that done.
3: I'm uh, skeptical that we're going to see much happen here for just that reason. You know, there's another factor here, too, which is the chief justice, who is the head of the judiciary. He runs the judicial conference, which set up the uh, code of ethics for all other uh, judges, has resisted criticizing his own justices and doing anything about this. In the past, chief justices, Earl Warren, came down hard against Abe Fortas for a set of ethical uh, issues that were like jaywalking compared to uh, hit and run by these other justices because he believed that the integrity of the court depended on it. And John Roberts keeps stonewalling. And as long as that happens, I don't see any Republicans in Congress willing to step up and say, this is really bad. We've got to do something about it. And that's a shame. And of course, the court's reputation now is in the dumper. Its uh, standing is lower than it has been uh, since polling has been conducted.
4: That's right. Um, Turning your attention for the final question here on Legal Face Off to a subject that we're all following, that you follow, that you've written a book about, or at least one book uh, Donald Trump, the ongoing legal issues involving the ex president. Um, You know, we, we will be talking later in our show about the damage that Trump did by continuing to talk, right? There's a Request for a motion for a gag order um, by the special counsel. But until that gag order is in place, it continues to dig a hole. Most recently on Meet the Press over the weekend, where he basically destroyed his one of his presumed lines of defense, which is blame your lawyers, right? He until now has basically said, I was only following my lawyers' advice. Over the weekend, he said, No, that's not true. It was all my decision, which is not surprising given Trump's hubris, he would never you know admit that he wasn't in control but that does seem to destroy a major piece of his, of his defense
3: is that is that true that's yes, absolutely true and you know he keeps saying whenever he does these interviews that he's eager to testify I will bet every one of his lawyers has their heads explode when he says that. And, of course, he won't testify. If he did, he would be hanging himself even more, as he has been doing in these public interviews and public settings. And we're seeing more and more evidence that uh, suggests that he's in deep trouble, even in Florida, where a friendly judge may not be able to help him. When Trump's former secretary said, after they had moved all the boxes, Trump said to her, you don't know anything about the boxes. So we got witness tampering, obstruction of justice, along with writing little notes and scrap paper that turned out to be classified documents. The stuff that this guy has done is astonishing. And even more astonishing, of course, is that he can still win a damn election.
2: Of course, the book referring to there, Dr. Ornstein, One Nation After Trump, A Guide for the Perplexed, Disillusioned, the Desperate, and the Not Yet Deported. you can find that online a New York Times and Washington Post bestseller. Dr. Ornstein, also an emer- emeritus scholar at the American Institute. You can also find a variety of articles and opinions on the New York Times and LA Times as well. Doctor, thanks so much for joining us today. Obviously covered a lot of topics there. We really appreciate it. Yeah,
5: my pleasure. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Downey & Lenkoff, a firm with offices in Illinois, Indiana, and Wisconsin. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like McDonald's, Target, Macy's, Wendy's, and the Chicago Bears for his zealous advocacy and outstanding litigation results. Rich's many accolades include being named as an Illinois Super Lawyer from 2015 to present and Leading Lawyer from 2012 to present. These are designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, serving on the Legal Prep Charter Academy Advisory Board and the Northern Illinois University College of Law Board of Visitors. Rich is also a producer, with credits including 85, The Greatest Team in Football History, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and Mike Ditka. Renegades, a Caesars Palace production starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco and Jim McMahon, Rock of Ages and Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel in Concert. In addition to hosting WGN's legal face-off since 2014, Rich serves as a legal analyst for a variety of media outlets. Downey & Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Downey & Lenkoff, Please visit dl-firm.com.
2: Legal face-off here on WGN. Here is Catherine Grasso. She's a law professor at Michigan State University here to break down a case for us. Professor, thanks so much for joining us today.
6: It's really my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. So, Professor, the Fourth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, which protects the public from unreasonable searches and seizures by the government, has been receiving a lot of attention these days. With several cases that are going to be discussed um, by the Supreme Court next week and considered for cert, they all involve instances where officers have approached vehicles with dash cams and cell phones now being ubiquitous. One would think that these types of cases might not be so prevalent. Why do you think we're still seeing so many of these types of cases?
7: You know, I do think that the dash cams and the cell phones answer a fact problem, right? We know what happened, but the legal question persists, right? The question of whether or not the police had developed their investigation sufficiently to in interrupt someone's privacy, to, to stop a car or to look in a car or to have their dog jump on a car. These are all things that have to do with whether the police exceeded the bounds of their authority under the Constitution. So the facts can help understand what they knew when, but there's still a legal question of if they knew enough. And the other piece that I think just is real is that uh, both Cars and cell phones are part of life in a huge way, and so much of our encounters with the police involve one or the other or both. You know, it just
6: feels like it's it's everywhere right now. Absolutely. So let's break down the cases that are going to be discussed by the court next week. Um, one of those cases involves a driver who had been pulled over after swerving across three lanes of traffic and the police dog that was present sniffed out a pill bottle and a plastic bag that had apparently contained meth residue um, when the driver had been pulled over. The issue being litigated here is whether the dog's mere touching of the car violated the Fourth Amendment as an unreasonable search. Tell us a bit more about this case and why you think, or maybe don't think, the court may find this one this this particular case appropriate for cert? Yeah, uh,
7: it's a, it's an interesting case. What, one of the fun things about this case is that if you read one side's set of facts or the other side's set of facts, they differ a lot about what the dog did. So the dog seems to have jumped on the car and uh, sniffed the um, discovered the drugs uh while uh sniffing the upper seams which i think must be the door like the top of the door i don't i don't I know exactly right. what it means but so sort of more than just an ordinary walk around the car somehow the a touching and it brings to mind uh the florida case it's called jardines and it it's a case where the police were using a dog and they walk up to someone's door with the dog And the question in the case was just like this one. Is it a search to use a dog in this way? The Supreme Court said, yes, everyone has a front door and we want the public to walk up to our front door. It's not where we have the most privacy, but... It's different when police deploy a dog in this way at the front door. They they use the phrase, it exceeds the license. It goes beyond what's allowed. And so it becomes a trespass in a way that violates the Fourth Amendment. And I can see this case as a candidate to see whether, after the death of Scalia, we're still going to look at the Fourth Amendment that way. Is this use of a dog a trespass? with the intention of gaining information under first a case in um, Washington, D.C., where they followed a car around with a GPS for forever. And Scalia said, well, I don't know if that's a violation of some reasonable expectation of privacy, but it's a trespass and that's enough for me. So that case, the dog on the porch case and this case sound similar Mm -hmm. in that the dog didn't just walk. Right, the dog did something more. So I I can see that um, they might want to explore it some more. Of course, they might
6: want to stay 10 feet away from it. (laughs) Right. Well, and I know that I'd read also that there was some discussion about how the way in which the dog conducted itself on the scene, the objectionable behavior, that there's at least a certain element of that that's necessary for the dog to do what they typically do, like they get up on their hind legs. I think that might be the way they're trained, so it seems like there's quite a bit of very fact-specific information that would have to be considered um, in the totality of the consideration of this case should the court decide to to grant cert on this one.
7: Yeah, the, the court really has... Shown a little bit more willingness or interest in um dog right dogs. The tradition Mm -hmm. is that use of a dog search is use of a dog deployment of a dog is not a search is not protected, but several recent cases have shaken that a bit. The one I just told you about on the porch, another one when it took too long to get the dog. I think
6: the courts just maybe thinking maybe we were too cavalier. Got it. So the other two cases that the court's going to be discussing next week involve the first of which involves a police officer who made a traffic stop where the car door was left open after the driver was asked to exit the car for a pat down, which led to the discovery of marijuana and a handgun in the vehicle. Um, The other case challenges San Diego's practice of chalking tires for parking enforcement. Um, the plaintiffs in that case claim that the practice violates the Fourth Amendment's protection against unreasonable searches as well. So let's take a look at these two cases. They're a bit different, but they're also along the similar theme of, of police officers approaching vehicles. Um, do you think, you know, what do you think is the likelihood that these will be granted cert? And how do you think, given the conservative bent of the court, how these may turn out? if they are granted sir well maybe with your last question first i
7: i don't know that the conservative liberal divide pertains always in crim and in, in these police investigation matters i don't think we know exactly how each of the new justices is going to rule on these crim cases and it maybe it'll maybe it'll be a little different so i, I hate i hesitate uh, to to say uh what would happen. The the chalk marking case, you know, um the original case is from Michigan, just up the road from me here. And uh the Sixth Circuit came out the opposite way uh from the Ninth Circuit. And you know, sometimes the court's interested in uh something like that that's ubiquitous, right? Everyone's impacted by it. Um but maybe uh maybe it's not as much of, as a, of an invasion of privacy as the other case where really the question in the other case is whether or not we consider police uh as a unit all of the police behavior is it uh, collective so uh, um maybe that's the part of the behavior is that so the they the um state uh in the uh the case where the car door was left open say well one police officer opened it and the other looked in the open door so it may be that That has more to do with the way society experiences car searches, and so they do want to get to the bottom of that. It also implicates the plain view doctrine, which, you know, the police, uh, the state are arguing in that case, well, you know, it was just in plain view, but in fact, there are a line of cases where a little bit of extra looking requires probable cause, right? They have to have more information to shine a flashlight, for example, the way they did might be more like in a case under the plain feel where they manipulated something. Maybe it's too much. Maybe it's like picking up a stereo in the case where the court said there's no such thing as a de minimis search. So both of those cases, of those two cases, I think the one where they, Um, use the flashlight to find marijuana and then bootstrap to the marijuana to search the whole car under the Carroll doctrine. And then, you know, one thing to the other. Um, And maybe when the initial stop was questionable, right? That that stop for tinted windows, but no tintometers has um, a history of discrimination, has history of problematic uh, exercise of discretion. And so maybe there's enough there that the court wants to
6: get full briefing and really uh, explore it. So last question here on legal face-off, the fourth amendment obviously touches on many of the current personal liberty issues that we've been hearing so much about. We've touched on how so many of these cases don't necessarily go in a way that's predictable. And the last several years, it's the fourth amendment's touched on many different things, anywhere from ice deportations to digital surveillance And two of the biggest Supreme Court cases in recent years involved warrants and the use of cell phone information. Mm -hmm. Um, To say the least, I think, you know, this all is has created what some have termed cognitive dissonance. Mm -hmm. Um, What are your thoughts? Is there a way for us to look at what appears to be an inconsistent landscape, at least across some of these cases, and maybe make sense of them on a higher level so that there may be not There's not as much cognitive dissonance as one may think. You know, I think the feeling of cognitive dissonance
7: arises some because the situation has so evolved. You know, think about our early cases, some of the earliest Fourth Amendment cases where the court wasn't sure that the Fourth Amendment protected intangible conversations. Right. They they didn't. The telephone conversations weren't initially thought of as protected. And now the court has come to understand that, of course, it has to protect privacy. It has to protect whatever privacy means. And, you know, uh, I love uh, Sotomayor saying, you know, I think they take their cell phones to bed with them. Right. I, I, they they recognize that this is different, that this is um, that um, it's possible to get detailed encyclopedia and effortlessly compi- effortless compiled, effortlessly compiled information like that, and the court ha- is worried, but not fully informed. Like doesn't have all of the experiences, all of all of the permutations that might be helpful in uh, defining a
2: clear rule. Professor Catherine Grasso of Michigan State University, a lot of information there. Thanks so much for joining us, Professor. Super enlightening stuff. Really appreciate it.
7: It was my pleasure. Thank you so much.
2: Next up here on Legal Faceoff on WGN, the first African-American female judge in all of Northern California, now a legal analyst for CNN and MSNBC. Judge LaDoris Hazard Cordell joins us to discuss her autobiography. Her honor it is so great to have you here, Judge. Thanks for joining us today.
8: Thank you for inviting me.
4: Uh, your Honor, the rest of the title of your book is My Life on the Bench, What Works, What's Broken, and How to Change It. You and I were speaking off camera about some things that are perhaps broken uh, about the court system. Why don't you expand on that and tell us in your uh, incredible experience and long uh, legal career, what are a couple things that are currently broken and, and how we might go about changing them?
8: Well, thank you for asking, Rich. Um, I, first of all, want to make it clear that that While there are many things that are broken in our legal system, I I do believe in it. I think there are some wonderful principles that underlie our legal system, probably the best in the world. The problem is in the implementation of these principles. Uh, So in in my book, which is a, a memoir about my nearly 20 years as a state trial court judge in California, I have a chapter called The Fix." It's the next to last chapter, where after I have talked about the variety of cases over which I presided, I then talk about some things that I believe are broken and how all of us, be in the legal field or not, can work to, to, to make them better, to fix these things that are broken. Uh, so one, one example is um, in the fix is the recall of judges. So, uh, as most people know, state court judges almost all are uh, at some point elected, which means in some states they can be recalled, meaning before their term is up, if you don't like the way a judge ruled or how a judge looks, you can start a petition and get the judge off the bench, uh, which is a serious blow to an independent judiciary. In the federal system, judges are appointed for life. They can never be recalled. They don't ever have to stand for election. So uh, in the book, I write about that, about judicial independence, how it's so misunderstood by people, and that there are ways to fix it. In California, there is a recall provision in the California Constitution. In my view, the Constitution should be amended to not prohibit judicial recalls. There are some bad actors in black robes that should not be allowed to finish out their terms. They're so horrible. Uh, So keep recalls. But there should be uh, specified three reasons for recalling a judge, not just because you don't like a lawful decision a judge has made. So I write about that in it. I write about uh, juvenile court. I write about whether or not we should have jury trials for juveniles who are actually in juvenile court tried there because juveniles generally uh, are their cases are tried before judges. Um, I talk about just about everything. Family court. Uh, talk about the uh, three strikes law about juries, and let me quick example. Um, I understand why so many people, because I know Rick, you're in the Rick, you're in the process of selecting a jury right now, and there's so many people who don't want to do jury duty. They see it like the plague, uh, and two reasons. Primarily, one, they have to sit around all day waiting and waiting, not knowing what's going on, and the other is low compensation. Um, and so, California, for example, is at the bottom that we pay $15 a day for jurors. And from my view, it's a duty, it's a civic duty, but it also takes time. And for most states that pay, almost all states, all states either pay nothing or pay very little, we end up with juries that are not cross-sections of our community because low-income people, and usually these are people of color, cannot afford to spend a day, a week, months, weeks, sitting on the jury because they have to earn a living. So I recommend in the fix that we have state jury funds that adequately compensate people who sit on juries and require the big companies, Google, Meta, LinkedIn, to pay the salaries of their employees who are chosen for jury duty because these companies are not required to do so. So
4: it's very interesting. You know, a couple of things that I want to also transition to based on your vast experience as you work on... The San Francisco District Attorney's Innocence Commission um, did extensive work there. Here in Illinois, we consistently rank. I think I saw a report where Illinois, for the fifth year in a row, ranked number one in exonerations in the country. That results in you know all sorts of issues, of course. Um, what are your thoughts on the current state of exonerations and wrongful evictions, both where you are in California and what you know about uh, here in, in Illinois, specifically Cook County? Sure.
8: Great question. And Two things. One is that it's just wonderful that people who have been wrongfully convicted are exonerated. On the other hand, it is horrible that they were convicted in the first place. Usually, they're convicted because of plea bargains, meaning prosecutors use plea bargains to coerce people into pleading guilty, even when they protest their, their, they say, I'm innocent, I'm innocent, because they basically overcharge and then say, okay, go to trial. You're convicted. On all of these, you're going away forever. Instead, plead to just this one or two and, you know, you'll get to get out. Uh, The U.S. Supreme Court has not helped this because they have now created, this has been in existence a long time, the Alford plea, which says you can plead guilty even though you proclaim that you're innocent. So even the court has promoted all of this. So um, in the book, I write about plea bargains and how the system, by the way, I quote a U.S. Supreme Court justice not currently on the bench who retired, who said plea bargains are the criminal legal system in this country. Uh, 98% of all criminal cases in states and the federal courts are resolved through plea bargains. There's something very wrong here when the Sixth Amendment guarantees everyone, everyone, a right to a speedy tr- jury trial in a criminal case, and yet judges. Ah, uh, get really pissed off when people decline plea bargains, and I've heard judges say it. Well, if you want to go to trial, okay, fine. But you know, if you're convicted, I'm going to throw the book at you. What is that? It's like judges have not read the Sixth Amendment to the Constitution. So it's very concerning to me, and I do write about it in the book.
4: Your Honor, you your book touches on, and uh, you certainly discuss uh, in other appearances um, the obstacles that you've overcome in your in your long distinguished legal career uh, over the last couple of weeks, we heard from Justice um, Ketanji Brown Jackson discuss that the nation has to confront uncomfortable lessons about race. Uh, we've seen, you know, a seemingly unrelentless or relentless attack, I should say, on uh, the vice president, also a prominent woman of color um, in this country, about her capabilities and competency to, res- you know, to, to take over for President Biden and whether she should be dropped from the ticket. Um, you know, despite the considerable advances, you still see a ways to go when it comes to women of color advancing in the political and legal systems.
8: Yeah, and and thank you again for bringing that up. Progress is measured not by how far we have come, but how far we have yet to go. We have come far. My uh, maternal great-grandmother and great-great-grandmother were enslaved. They were the enslaved. Uh, My parents came up in the Great Migration from the South uh, where I grew up in Pennsylvania. They had to deal with Jim Crow. Uh, so when we look at progress, yes, I ended up wearing a black robe and my ancestors were the enslaved. That's terrific. But we have so much further to go and we're seeing it today more than ever. And it really started, in my view, with the election of Barack Obama, because then the racism that has been underneath the surface in America for ever has really surfaced. And now we're dealing with it all the time in just very blatant ways. So the, the fight never ends. I will tell you, though, I am I am ever hopeful. I'm not going to give up. Um, I get frustrated, as I'm sure many people do. But the key is to um, basically, there are two types of people in the world, in my view. There are the bystanders, and then there's the upstanders. The bystanders stand by and complain. The upstanders, like you, um, uh, with your podcast and the work that you do in the courts, you, you lawyer up, you speak up, you sing up, whatever it is that takes people to do whatever they can, um, to, to keep moving forward. So we're, it feels like I'm taking two steps. We're taking two steps back and then a step up. And it might feel that way, but I, I hope that everybody, everyone will continue to be hopeful, uh, not in a Pollyanna way, but to do things like vote. Uh, to, to keep progress happening. So there's
4: a couple more questions with the few minutes we've got left, and it's a real privilege, and we really appreciate uh, you coming on the podcast. Um, on Monday of this week, Illinois became the first state to completely eliminate cash bail. This, of course, was met with lots of opposition, and after literally years of debate about whether that would result in you know um, additional problems and people being uh, on the street that shouldn't, what's your take on, on this development And certainly whether you you see other states like California following Illinois' lead.
8: Yeah. So uh, bail reform has been an issue in California. I congratulate the state of Illinois. I'm I'm all for a system that does not imprison people or keep them behind bars because they're poor, because they don't have a means of getting out. So bail reform is absolutely needed. Uh, So California, we're getting lots of pushback, and a lot of it is coming from the judges who just don't want to do it. Um, And so there are going to be more issues. There's going to be probably more litigation here in California. It'll be very interesting to see what happens in Illinois, uh, because I have seen judges in California just ignore the law and say, I'm not letting that person out. They're just going to have to post bail. Uh, So Illinois is a state where we all should be watching. I applaud what has happened in Illinois. And uh, let's hope that it's contagious and and spreads throughout the country.
4: Judge, last question here in, uh, availing ourselves of your considerable skills as a legal analyst among the many other roles that you play. Uh, we can't let you out of here without talking about Trump, which I know you've discussed frequently over the last few months and indeed years. Um, what struck me over the weekend with Trump was how stupid his remarks were to Kristen Welker on Meet the Press when he basically, uh, you know, wiped out his defense that I relied on lawyers in, uh, you know, in, in, in in holding on to the records and in the various uh, charges I've been I've been charged with where he said it was all on me. I mean, that to me seemed like it completely wiped out one of his key defenses. What are your thoughts?
8: Well, I I don't disagree with you at all. My my concern really is about when these cases actually get to trial, uh, who are going to be on the juries? Is there going to be jury nullification? Uh, and i'm also paying really good attention to the trial judges so you've got a black woman judge in in one federal case in dc you've got um a young white male judge with just 8 months of experience as a judge handling probably the trial of the century in georgia uh and one of the issues i will tell you that came up for me is if you have 19 or 17 um defendants each of them has a lawyer so that's Thirty-four people, seventeen plus seventeen plus. You have maybe four or five prosecutors. So where do you put forty litigants and lawyers plus jurors? Where do you even try the case? Nobody's even really talking about that. I can tell you, in California, when there was the back in the day, there was a big class action suit over abs, asbestos. There were so many litigants, plaintiffs um, in the case that they held pretrial motions at a theater in San Francisco. Uh, And it's a civil case, and that was fine to kind of weed out. Some plaintiffs dropped out, and there you go. But what do you do in a criminal case when you have 40 litigants and you have security because you have Secret Service because Donald Trump's one of the litigants? Where do you even do it? No one's even talking about that. So there's some really interesting issues ahead. Um, And, of course, um, I believe... Last thing that Donald Trump—he can't stop talking—and uh, I believe his diagnosis, quite frankly, it, and it is a diagnosis called logoria, and it's a, someone who has a need to talk and oftentimes incoherently. And I believe he has logoria. Uh, so good luck with that for his lawyers that are representing him, and good luck with the judge in this case. So it's going to take somebody who can really control a courtroom and. Uh, Uh, I wish the best to these judges who have a lot on their hands.
2: Judge Ladoris Hazard Cordell, fascinating stuff. You can find her book, Her Honor, My Life on the Bench, What Works, What's Broken, and How to Change a Judge. This was really great to have you on. Thanks so much for your insight on a variety of topics. Uh, Hope to talk again soon.
8: Thank you so much. It was an honor for me to be on this podcast.
0: You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Face Off. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery, and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble, and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence extraordinary client service and a high performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future to contact Tina. And to learn more about McDermott, Will and Emery, visit MWE.com.
4: All right. Welcome back everyone. We've got our favorite segment of the show, the legal grab bag portion of legal face Off. We are without our variety of hosts today, Tina, uh, both of our, um, Moderators are gone. So it's you and me introducing our esteemed guests back for a second time because she did so great the first time is Mandy Carvis, who is a partner in the Wickersmith Phoenix office and a fellow devotee of Orange Theory. She was coaching me a little bit on how to master the rower before we got started. Mandy, welcome back to the program.
9: Yeah, thanks for having me.
4: And a special guest also all the way from Texas by way of California, Simon Kishishian, who is vice president of risk management and risk control for a small company we might have heard of called Red Bull. Simon, you give us wings. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Uh, So we're going to jump right into our topics today. Uh, We've got seven topics. First one, of course, Tina being our go-to Trump watch. The latest news involving the ex-president, latest legal news. There's plenty of other news. The latest le- legal news is, um, we talked about this actually earlier in the show is, you know, the president so far has said seemingly that he will blame his lawyers in the various criminal charges against him. In other words, certainly the January 6th. Uh, indictments, um, the Mar-a-Lago indictment. Those are two of the cases where one of his defenses, seemingly, Tina, will be, I was just following my the advice of counsel. You know, I'm not a legal expert, and I was following the advice that my attorneys gave me. And there's, you know, a pretty colorable argument that that would be at least moderately successful. Um, well, he kind of blew that up on Sunday. Uh, on Meet the Press, Trump talked to new host Kristen Welker, And basically said flat out, unequivocally, I wasn't following my lawyers. I made these decisions myself. Now, any of us who have heard Trump, and that's all of us over the years, know that you can't be surprised by this revelation, right? It's not exactly a surprise to think that Trump, when asked who's responsible for these decisions, took credit for them. It would be smart legally, but beyond his brand. To say that this wasn't his decision. So, not surprising, Tina, but actually, from a legal perspective, probably a major blow to his defense.
6: I would think so, Rich. You know, remains to be seen how he's going to frame and spin it to try to get out of it. But I think the interview was conducted, you know, very brilliantly in terms of eliciting information that most of us would recognize is against our self interest. Um, But, you know, it's with the knowledge of who we're talking to and how they typically like to communicate what they're up to, who they are, how smart they are, all that good stuff. So it'll be interesting to see how this unfolds, Rich.
4: Now, Mandy, ironically, Just a few days before this, on Friday of last week, Jack Smith, Special Counsel Jack Smith, asked the court for a gag order to shut Trump up because a lot of what he's been saying and uh, putting on social media is, per Jack Smith, meant to dissuade witnesses from coming forward and meant to silence witnesses, witness intimidation. Well, I think Jack Smith probably is better served to just lift any gag order and let Trump say whatever he wants. For this very reason, he's digging his own hole legally.
9: Yeah, I mean, I can understand why he was seeking that. But now he's got to be happy that that wasn't in effect because, I mean, as Tina pointed out, uh, you know, it was it was brilliant interviewing because we know that one of Trump's favorite things to do is say, I'm responsible for this. It was all my idea. And he just was brilliantly set up to say that very thing. And. It was also interesting because you could kind of see um, her reacting that, wow, I can't believe he just said that. And yet there was no reaction on his part that, oh, maybe I shouldn't have said that when that's completely inconsistent with what I've been saying all along.
4: Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty amazing. Uh, Simon, in other Trump news. Uh, lots of things going on. Number one, it was revealed that he paid, uh, about $300,000 to Peter Navarro, Peter Navarro's defense fund, uh, who was just found, uh, uh, guilty in, um, the failure to comply with the congressional subpoena case. Uh, Giuliani, his former attorney, has been sued for $1.4 million in unpaid legal fees. We know it's been extensively covered, that Giuliani is basically broke and can't afford any of his legal fees. It's also been revealed in a book by former Trump aide uh, Cassidy Hutchinson, or at least alleged by her, that during the January 6th insurrection in the tent where the family was, including Trump, that this former close aide to Trump was groped by Rudy Giuliani. She tells in quite vivid detail how he basically put his hands up her blouse and her skirt he yesterday uh, put out a statement and actually gave an interview where he he denied it, said that would be absurd. But, um, you know, the hits just keep on coming for for Trump and his crew legally. Yeah, so that that reminds me of, of a
1: movie. It was a very fine film that I watched recently. I think it involved a gentleman by the name of Borat, where something similar may have happened while he was yes. being interviewed by somebody. Uh, so it doesn't seem like when we're talking about brand or off brand, it doesn't seem very off brand for Giuliani to be at least there'd be allegations with respect to groping with respect to that gentleman. I may have seen that bit, the, the, the movie, which again, it has no implication of what happened on, on, on January 6th, but, uh, but it's always interesting. And, uh, you know if you don't want to pay somebody's bills, I would think that you're know, not paying a lawyer's bills might be the first way to try, so sort of draw some heat because typically lawyers do have a mechanism that they're that they're able to recover fees through the court system and if if somebody's got the pleading laying around that they can dust off and file it's 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 always going to be something that I think if I had sort of a a list of bills to pay or not to pay, I would start maybe by paying my lawyers first so I can get the defense that I need elsewhere but but what else can I say? I mean, it's kind of like the same thing, different day. <laughs> I keep seeing, You know, it's uh, uh, so I don't know. Uh, but I guess if you ain't got the if you ain't got the money, um, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? The,
4: the, the takeaway here, Mandy, is all of our clients who are listening should hear from one of the leaders in our industry saying, Pay your legal bills promptly. That's what I that's at least what I heard from, from our friend, Simon. <laughs> that, that's
1: what I said, but only at the discounted insurance defense rate. We're not <laughs> to the detail. Let's be clear
4: about that. There you go. So uh, what's also in the news, like literally breaking out is Bob Menendez, who's a sitting New, New Jersey senator, has been indicted by the U.S. attorney for a lot of the same things we're talking about. Corruption. Allegedly, he took for his personal use, him and his wife. Let's see. Cash gold bricks, uh, Mercedes, uh, lavish trips in exchange for giving access to uh, Washington to the Egyptian government. So his legal bills are being paid, I understand, by a legal defense fund, which is just incredible that these people expect the American taxpayers to pay their legal fees. Trump has the same thing going on. But we'll cover that story, I'm sure, next time. Moving on to our next story, Tina. Around the same discussion point, right, we can't cover Trump without covering the sort of his uh his his brother in apparent corruption, which is uh Hunter Biden. Hunter Biden has the let's just call it nerve. We might call it something else, to allege that he's embarrassed by the actions of the IRS. I mean, it takes a certain amount of chutzpah, as we'll say, on the eve of Yom Kippur, right? <laughs>
6: You're right, Rich. So yes, earlier this week, Hunter Biden sued the IRS claiming that they unlawfully released his confidential tax return information um, and failed to safeguard his private records. The irony continues when you juxtapose him, Rich, against our former president who did everything he possibly could not to disclose any tax information whatsoever. But Hunter Biden seeking all documents tied to the disclosure of his tax information and $1,000 for each unauthorized release of his private information. He says that it's not necessarily a question of the legitimacy of the investigation itself over the past five years, nor is it um, to in any way question the decision to penalize him. It's instead uh focusing on what he's calling the disregard of the IRS in its obligations with respect to keeping um, his protected tax return information private. Now, Biden's lawyers argue that whistleblower protections don't apply. That's one of the potential defenses here. Um, everybody seems to think that although the lawsuit doesn't name um, the specific IRS agents, that it's Gary Shapely and Joseph Ziegler. Um, and, you know, Biden, as you mentioned, his this is not the first of his Uh, wranglings with the law. He was just indicted on felony gun charges um, linked to him being an unlawful drug user when he bought his gun and lying about the use of drugs. He had struck a plea deal. That deal fell apart. This past Wednesday, actually, a federal judge denied his request to have his first court appearance on those charges be conducted remotely. He's going to have to appear in court October 3rd for his arraignment in Wilmington, Delaware, So yes, Rich. So this is somebody who is pretty knowledgeable on what it is to break the law, so to speak.
4: My God, we we should have a segment, Simon. And we we should title it just "Please Go Away." I mean, that's what the, the new title. "Please Go Away, Comma Hunter Biden." I mean, just stop. This is a guy who was seen on, you know, film driving through a residential neighborhood while smoking a crack pipe. Right? We've all seen the pictures of him in the bathtub smoking and. His gnarly, cracked teeth back when he was addicted. I understand he was, you know, under the influence of narcotics, but how could this guy say he's embarrassed by anything at this point, right? How can he sue? The, and he's actually suing individual agents, right? Who, I don't know, I think it's an uphill battle to prove that they meant to embarrass him. This stuff's all out in the open anyway. So go away, Hunter. Simon? Yeah, I mean, I don't know what's more embarrassing. I, I actually would
1: like to show my tax returns once in a while. I think there it's impressive go. to show that you manage to to bring in certain levels of income while uh, as you were saying smoking in the pipe while driving around in the neighborhood it takes it takes somebody uh it takes somebody with a lot of multitasking abilities to do something like that i'm not sure that there's anything for me to comment on legally other than uh, it's always impressive but it seems to me that trump did a much better job in keeping his tax records out of the public domain and for that i think that's one point to trump uh and zero to uh to Biden. That's all I have. I don't know if that's of any value, but it's those are my value. thoughts.
4: It's greatly a value as will be your input on the next story. Let's all comment on the one chip challenge. Tina, this is uh, uh, you know, I think we all know what happened here. Um, if, you, if you did, not there was a 14-year-old uh, in Massachusetts, I believe, who after, uh, engaging in this one chip challenge, which is basically a viral sensation. We see these every couple of weeks where there's, you know, someone else either dying or getting hurt from one of these stupid challenges. This one unfortunately led to this individual's death. Allegedly, it's where you eat, uh, this product. It's, uh, a single tortilla chip dusted with the two hottest peppers known to man. Um, and there's all sorts of videos of people doing it and crying and, you know, and this individual allegedly died. It's a Hershey subsidiary. Um, They've pulled, the company has pulled the product from the store. And, of course, this interested us, Tina and, and Mandy, because of the possible legal implications. Inevitably, when you see this, there is going to be a lawsuit against the manufacturer, against the distributor. Um, And, you know, it would be, uh, you know, frequently this comes down to a question of notice, as Simon knows. And it would be hard-pressed to allege or to answer that you didn't have notice. The question is also causation. Did this person have underlying medical issues? Was there some other reason? Of course, the fact that this is the first death when hundreds, thousands, maybe more of other people have done this, obviously, lead you know, supports the conclusion that it's not related, but obviously a tragedy. Um, but there are some legal, interesting legal issues, Tina, of course.
6: Yeah, Rich, I mean, I think there's a lot to this. I think there's a lot of information we don't know. I mean, our my guess is that this is the only, this is the first death that we've seen being publicized, but you've got a lot of people who've gotten super sick from this. And, you know, while there are warnings on it, I think you have to sort of look at, are these warnings effective in the context of who is being harmed and who is purchasing these products? I mean, to tell... People that this is super hot, it's the hottest thing you'll ever have, sort of almost, you know, I I guess, inciting people to partake. I think when you're talking about young people who may not know better, um, as well as having these types of products readily available for purchase, I think there's a lot of complicating factors here. But the fact that a lot of people get sick in varying degrees eating these products, I think, is something that will need to be considered here.
4: Uh, man, you defend these kind of cases a lot. You know, obviously an issue in a lawsuit would be the degree of comparative fault, right? I mean, it's a 14 year old on the one hand. So any defendant would say that you understood the risks. It's clearly written on the label. The fact that it's so viral and well known plays into the idea that how did you not know? How did the decedent not know that this would be dangerous? On the other hand, again, the lack of prior similar death would Support the idea that we knew, you know, I I took the risk that it would be hot, not you know death-inducing uh, heat.
9: Yeah, I mean, I think obviously assumption of the risk is is huge here, um, but also, you know, all, you know, in in layman's terms, it's something that I've argued to juries lots of times, which is choices have consequences. Um, you did this knowing that, you know, at at a bare minimum, this was gonna, you know, burn extremely. Uh, the whole thing is to kind of induce pain. Uh, but more than anything, I, you know, assumption of the risk, you know, they'll still be able to file the claim. It will be asserted. But to me, the bigger piece here, as Tina mentioned, is, is the causation piece. I mean, they said that the kid stopped breathing a couple of hours after, um, I think they'd have a really hard time establishing, um, Causation, there. I mean, they're just making the temporal association of the two things, causation, and that's a far cry from it. It'll, it'll be interesting to see what comes out was actually the cause of um, the breathing and 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 the issues.
4: Yeah, we're pulling up the warning label here on the screen, Simon. Um, you're in the you know food and beverage industry, obviously, and this warning seems pretty clear. Keep out of reach of children. A 14 year old certainly is a minor. Uh, it, it then repeats it right intended for adult consumption do not eat if you're sensitive to spicy foods Etc uh seek medical assistance so you know we all know who do this kind of work every day that that's not a defense necessarily you can't avoid liability simply by slapping that on your label but it certainly adds to the uh, argument that the, that a potential defendant would put forth Simon sure I'm assuming these are all affirmative defenses I think if I was going to try to be this is not a funny
1: case but but I was trying to understand how this kid was able to purchase. I'm mean, sure you can walk into a store and purchase this, but I wonder if a parent was involved and they sort of were involved with this. But it, it's always interesting to me, not only this is more of a product's liability case, this isn't like a, a, a standard negligence case. And I think sure. there's a different standard. Uh, and it's really interesting that the product has been pulled from the market um, for probably a number of different reasons. I'm sure it wasn't their best seller or anything like that. And so I wonder if they're pulling it from the market is a subsequent sort of measure that that also comes into play when you're sort of looking at the overall liability picture, although you would hope that they would. Back to this idea of the assumption of the risk. Um, I mean, I can't imagine that a 14-year-old would have the, the mindset to understand that eating a single chip was going to potentially cause them to be um, – you know not not survive or live uh, obviously that's kind of extreme but back to uh, the, the other point that was raised I mean I'm uh, it's really hard to tell without the autopsy without understanding what the underlying medical conditions may be or may not have been and what other things may have been consumed in the process of this um, it's really questionable as to whether or not a single potato chip could cause somebody to expire so these are all interesting uh, sort of questions there's probably a lot more investigation that needs to be done and a lot more information That needs to be sort of uh, weighed before we're at a point where we can make any kind of a decision. But it is an interesting
4: headline. One chip is all it took.
8: Um,
4: Um, So, Tina, Nelson Walker uh, might be the world's biggest Dolphins fan to the extent, so much so that uh, he's accused of stealing a Dolphins jersey. When he got to court, guess what he's wearing? Dolphins jersey. Dolphins jersey. I mean, you know. I'm not sure this is the smartest move by this young man. Um, but you know, there's a great video speaking of viral videos. This one's got a lot of views where he shows up in court uh there in uh in Miami and uh he was arrested. him and his friend were arrested after they were caught with you know these allegedly stolen goods and some hats that were about three hundred dollar value. and he shows up wearing a number 15 dolphins jersey um and Judge Ward asked him. You know, first of all, who that player was. Um, And then she looks at him kind of funnily like, oh, wait a second. You're denying that you stole a Dolphins jersey. What's that on your body? Now, he claims that it was a different jersey. He's not guilty of the theft because he owned this jersey outright. Um, But uh, he was allowed to go to the hospital. It turns out he was given $5,000 bonds. Um, But he was banned forever from uh, attending Sun Life Stadium, which is where the Dolphins play. Um, So, you know, maybe some lessons there, Tina, don't show up to court wearing something that you allegedly stole.
6: Yeah. um, It was pretty ridiculous. I'm not sure how young he is either, Rich. (laughs) You you mentioned he was a young man. I I, I think you're being very kind in many ways when you're talking about this guy. Um, It was just crazy to me that I mean, the first of all, the judge's face was priceless. I mean, you never want to have a judge making faces like that when you say anything in court. Um, she was actually much kinder to him than I think a lot of judges would have been. Um, but yeah, the whole notion of showing up in a dolphin's jersey and then trying to make the argument that somehow, no, you know, this is my dolphin's jersey. This is not this is not the Jersey that was stolen. I mean, it was just the way that he responded. It was pretty clear that he did do it. And um, he was sort of losing track of his own train of thought and in his defenses.
4: Yeah. I mean, um, you know, there, there have been times in dolphins history where you would not show up anywhere wearing a dolphins Jersey because the team was so bad. So maybe the dolphins ought to reward him a little rather than banning him, but let's move on to our next story. Just given uh, our our time constraints here today, uh, Tina, you know, you see these stories every few months where an engagement is broken off and the question is, who gets the ring, who gets the presents, who gets the gifts? Um, It's actually, you know, founded in pretty logical uh, contract law frequently.
6: Yeah, Rich. So what's really interesting is that it it each like it's a state law issue, right? And. Who ends up with the ring after um, it's broken off? Sometimes I think the answer is dependent upon whether it's broken off before the wedding after, you know, or, or if it ends up in divorce. Places like Massachusetts, there's no set rule, for example, and the right answer depends on how the engagement ended and why. So courts will actually look to who is the more honorable of the two um, leading up to the to the breakup. Um, But other states come out differently. They're all over the map. States like Illinois treat engagement rings like conditional gifts and say they have to be returned regardless of who caused the marriage not to take place. A lot of states follow that rule. And other states like Colorado say if the engagement is ended by the person with the ring, it has to be returned. But if it ended with the other party pulling the trigger um, then it can be kept. So, um, you know, these these stories are interesting, especially those states, Rich, where they actually look to who was the bad guy sometimes. And yeah. it's unfortunate that these the, these stories become almost entertaining, but it's unfortunate for the people who are involved.
4: Yeah, Mandy, in this case, in, in this Massachusetts case involving a, what, $70,000 ring, uh, they looked into, you know, the circumstances surrounding the breakup. And I guess there was a uh, a spilled drink um, that this uh, woman berated this man about allegedly, and she didn't like how he ate oysters and the time it took him to access messages on a cell phone. I'm not sure that, you know, the court should be involved to that degree, but I guess in deciding who gets the property that might be uh, that might be an issue.
9: Yeah. It was a big uh, insult to injury thing here because in order to get the ring back, uh, he had to lay out all of the bad things that this person had done in the relationship. She was mean to me. She belittled me. Oh. And, you know, she said, I didn't check my text messages fast enough, but boy, I checked hers and she was, she was cheating and I should get the ring back. Um, so yeah, just a lot of, uh, personal business to put out there, but so he really, he really wanted that ring back.
4: Simon,
1: we didn't establish there was any cheating going on. There was something about a playground and visiting and playing on the playground. Let's be clear, playground does not necessarily swinging of that. some
9: sort. It seems. Oh, like. well,
1: they won't. So there was a swing on a playground. I mean, look, you know, <laughs> I used to do that in elementary school.
4: Moving on. <laughs> hey, some would say that after a failed relationship, seventy thousand dollars is a bargain. Just give that and move the hell on. Uh,
9: speaking. Look of- at Kevin Costner's <laughs> recent divorce.
4: Exactly. Kevin Costner and speaking.
9: He didn't want to. He he was already in the top 10 most expensive celebrity divorces from his divorce from his first wife. And he didn't want to make the list a second time.
1: You know, there's that scene from Bronx Tale where the guy owes him money, whatever it was, 10 bucks. And he's like, you know what? I'd rather not have to see his face. I'll pay $10 for that. So you never know. I mean, relationships can go in a different direction. 70,000 is a little rich for my blood, but hey, let her take the ring and, you know, Maybe we don't have to. We don't have to see each other anymore. That might be okay. That might be worth the price of admission. Similarly,
4: from a Bronx Tale, Simon: Is it better to be loved or feared? <laughs> Question for our listeners to ponder as they watch Bronx Tale again. But moving on to uh, you know continued celebrity issues and problems. Uh, and speaking of divorces, uh, one of the Jonas Brothers is breaking up. All three Jonas Brothers are married or were married until this divorce goes through, and uh what joe is the middle i believe joe's the middle or maybe he's the oldest i'm not sure who could keep track of the jonas brothers age status you need a flow chart that's beyond me but anyway joe jonas was married to uh sophie her last name an actress um on um game of thrones
9: game of thrones turner, of thrones. Sophie turner
4: exactly <laughs> sophie turner from game of thrones um also has appeared in many of, of the joe bros videos Um, they have split up. They, you know, as is typical in these celebrity divorces, they released a very nice sounding above board statement that we're consciously decoupling or, you know, lovingly separating whatever the words are. And then just two days later, they're in court, uh, you know, throwing the nastiest of allegations against each other, including that, uh, basically there's some cross national kidnapping going on. Uh, Sophie Turner is back in England. She is of English descent. Joe Jonas is American and allegedly per this court filing yesterday, he is holding on to the passports of the two children, preventing them from returning to England with their mother. Uh, the allegation is that, uh, the parties had agreed that they would be based in England. Jonas is based in, in, um, in Los Angeles and he countered that he has been in essence the single parent during the course of this. You know, difficult time in their marriage. He says that they're living a different lifestyle. Many have interpreted that to mean that perhaps she has strayed from the marriage. Based on some other video that's been surfaced, she was seen partying right before the divorce filing. So the theory per the defendant here, Joe Jonas, is um, that he's doing the right thing for the best interest of the kids by keeping them in Los Angeles. And even though he's on tour a lot, the allegation in the in the answer is that he actually has lots of time for them during the day. That Sophie Turner doesn't. So man, Tina, these uh, these Hollywood uh, relationships are tough.
6: Yeah, Rich. I mean, we had all thought we had recovered this story previously on on the grab bag and we had all thought I think that you know, there's been a lot of he said she said. Um some people say that he's the party animal, some people say that she is. Um but ultimately I think it's it this has taken a surprising and ugly turn. And I hope that these guys can reach some sort of a settlement pretty quickly because this is not making either one of them look good. And I think the most important thing here is to try to keep it as um, civil as possible for the kids. Um, and right now, this is taken a pretty ugly turn.
4: Simon, so, mean, what is it about your state, California? Why can't people be happy there is it the weather is it there's too much nice weather what's going on there in LA
1: I think it's just too much sun people get hit with the sun sun. for an extended period of time and get dehydrated and it affects their their mental faculty but you know the the side about this particular story was the one about the the ring camera and whatever it was that yeah uh, the Jonas uh, witnessed or didn't witness and I just want to ask him I can't get my ring camera to ever work And (laughs) and I can't figure out how to download those images so that's really what the uh the the story
4: is, I think, is figuring that out. Hey, maybe um, that's why you're happily married after what, how many years, Simon? I mean, um, you know, twenty-three and a half. Yeah, twenty-three and a half. See. Happily. That's right. See, defective ring cameras are, are okay. Uh Mandy, you and I uh recently were at a concert together, but not together. We were there, we didn't know we were there together till well after. Uh, are you a Joe Bros fan? Have you seen there? They just came out off a huge tour, actually. Uh, or they're in the middle of it, perhaps. Have you seen the Joe Bros?
9: No, I don't, I don't think I'm their, uh, their demographic. No.
4: <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, moving on to our last story. Uh, another celebrity divorce, Tina. I hate to be, what, what is it about? Uh, what are we? September, end of September, beginning of October. Where's the happy marriage stories? But, uh, Ariana Grande. Is breaking up and uh, simultaneously file for divorce with her soon to be ex husband Dalton Gomez, who's also kind of a celebrity, right?
6: He, I thought, was a realist. He was in real estate.
4: Um, oh. Maybe I'm thinking of the wicked guy. She used to. You're date- thinking
6: of the wicked guy, who's yeah, the guy yeah, waiting yeah. in the wings, right? So, right. Yeah. So you know, it's interesting. I was watching The Voice when Ariana Grande was on it, and I think she was just engaged at that point. Um, she and Dalton Gomez were married for just over two years. She filed for divorce on Monday, um, and he simultaneously filed for dissolution of their marriage on the same day. Um, you know, they have a prenup in place. We've talked a lot about that here on Legal Face Faceoff um, and apparently have been separated since February. The hope is and the musings are that given there is a prenup in place and that they're young. That it's probably just gonna take um her cutting a check to Dalton Gomez. And this will probably be one for the books. But um, you know, as we've said also, Rich, this has been characterized as a respectful, conscious uncoupling. Um, Ariana has been spotted with and has started to date her wicked co star Ethan Slater. She started dating him um back in the be clear, it's after. not a
4: not, it's not her wicked as if like you're from No, Boston. it's
6: her he's, co-star he's great. in Wicked.
4: Got it, got it. I thought you were calling yes. how great the guy was. That's yes. a boss thing, no, rich. Nobody goes
1: around saying wicked anymore. Yeah, that's true. Yeah.
6: No. So yeah, wait, her her wicked movie co-star. Yes. Um, he also has split from his his wife Lily J. They've got a kid. She's probably calling him Wicked, but you know, I don't want to put words yeah. in her mouth. So Ariana's been seen about town. She was at Wibbledon with another one of her co-stars. So I guess the question here, Rich, is does she get to keep her ring or not?
4: Ah, there you go. It all comes full circle. Yes. <laughs> Kashishian, I know you're a big Ariana Grande fan. Are you devastated? Are you as devastated by this news as uh, as I am? No. No. <laughs> all right, let's finish up, Mandy, with uh, our, our favorite part of the show. We go around the room. We like to get to know... One another through one of our stories here, and uh, let's see. Tina mentioned Wicked, right? The uh, the play that the new beau of Ariana Grande is starring in or starred in. Let's talk about our favorite uh favorite musical or theatrical shows of all time. What's what's a play or a musical that you've been to that you highly recommend? It's interesting. I was just watching Hard Knocks, finishing Hard Knocks. On HBO, and they ended a segment by asking all these players, because it's New York, what their favorite uh, plays were. So maybe I'm inspired by that. But Kashishin, you're a man of letters. You're a renaissance man. You're a man of the arts. As long as I've known you, you've been that way. Big, big theater guy. What is your favorite theater production of all time? Well, look, I'm wearing a Red Bull shirt right now. So
1: I must say it must be the sound of music because we are headquartered in Salzburg, in Austria, where the hills are alive with the sound of music. And therefore, it must be the
4: sound of music. My God, that's the greatest answer I've ever seen on the fly. That's incredible, uh, Mandy. You got to have a couple of favorites.
9: Um, yeah, I mean, a musical theater is 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 interesting, and I, I like a lot of the movie adaptations. So I think I'll go with uh, with perhaps one of the obvious, but "Legally Blonde" the musical was uh, was pretty entertaining. Oh, yeah,
4: for sure. Elle Woods. That was uh, Tina's inspiration for going to law school. (laughs) Oh, it's Tina. Favorite. Mine too. Yeah. (laughs) Favorite uh, theatrical production. Doesn't have to be a musical, but it can be.
0: Well,
6: I'm thinking musicals and I'm thinking, you know, what I found to be particularly um, influential during my formative years. I loved Annie, the original run. That was a lot of fun. And I was really young when it
4: came out. And he's great. I actually love the, uh, the Jamie Foxx, Annie remake. I thought that was incredible a few years ago. Um, my, I'm, I'm going to go non, I like musicals too, but I, I'm going to go non-musical and you know, it's not even close. Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross by the great David Mamet, one of the great American screenwriters, screenwriters um, is my favorite for sure. Uh, uh, I started off as a play. Many people know the movie, but I've seen it on Broadway sitting inches from Al Pacino playing uh, Shelly the Machine Levine. So would watch that play every day. It's amazing Um, and uh, a great movie. Um, So with that, we will uh, thank all our guests, Mandy Carvis, Simon Kishishian. Thank all of you, our listeners and viewers, and thank everyone behind the scenes, Leslie and um, our whole team here. And also, you've got something. Speaking of jerseys, Mandy, what have you got? I see some numbers. Yes, here. yes. Uh,
9: trigger warning for all you Chicago oh, Bears well. fans for what's coming up on Sunday. But I have my own uh, number 15, Patrick Mahomes uh, jersey here. So yeah, um,
4: for those of our listeners that don't know, we drafted a different quarterback. Instead of picking Patrick Mahomes in that draft, we got a guy named Mitch Trubisky, who is now, I think, still a back of the league. But, uh, yeah, we're uh, we're facing hard times and uh, 2 going into KC on uh on sunday so we'll see how sunday looks but thank you for rubbing that in mandy we really hey
9: you you can always count on me you're welcome
4: all right <laughs> thanks everyone we'll see you soon
5: it's christina martini and rich Linkov. you know what time it is welcome to legal face off two lawyers trading jab for jab so hit them up with any questions you have wgn radio we blowing up your stereo got a question just pick up the phone and they'll let you know Cover covering sports hollywood and don't forget